All right, kids ages three to kindergarten can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship if they'd like. If not, no big deal. For the rest of you, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter one this morning. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay. The text should be in your order of worship. It'll be up on the screen behind me. If you don't own a Bible, there are five or six on the back table we'd love to give to you. Uh, but especially this morning, it's going to be really important to have that have the, the Scripture out in front of you so that you know that this isn't just a bunch of propaganda. Uh, <laughs> uh, look, we've been, we've been taking um, the whole summer to look at uh, inconvenient truths, those things that the Bible says that, that we sometimes wish it didn't because they're not things that we uh, particularly like. Some of those we're like, oh, I'm fine with that. Uh, but others are going are, are gonna to push on us in, in some ways. And last week, like I said earlier, we began what will be three sermons on sexuality. Um, last week and then this week and then finally on August 9th will be our last one on sexuality. And last week we laid some basic framework that I want to remind us of. That the biblical vision for sexuality is that sexuality is very good. It's just not God. Right? That it's something that God created, it's good, it's, it, it, it is, it, it's something that he even delights in, but it's not God. That we are spiritual beings primarily, not sexual ones, despite what Sigmund Freud said, and that sexuality is designed to function only within the covenant relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. And, and if, you, if you took nothing else from that message last week, uh, what, what I would have wanted you to take from that is this, that Ultimately, because of the nature of what sexuality is, of how God designed it, of, of, of the way it's supposed to be shared within that total life commitment that, that sex outside of marriage is telling your significant other, I want your body but not your life. That I'm, I'm willing to uh, use you, but I don't want to be committed to you. It's the exact opposite of what God designed sex to say. It may feel loving, but indeed, in fact, it's, it's actually selfish. Okay. This morning we come to a, a, a timely message. I said last week, uh, ironically enough, that our series had been planned with dates, in fact, uh, for uh, like over a year. Um, and yet these sermons now are occurring in a timely fashion because recent events in our cultures have made it more poignant. Especially today, because today we are taking a look at what the Bible says inconveniently uh, about about uh, homosexuality and same-sex attraction. There is a ton of confusion out there right now, both in what the Bible says and how we're supposed to apply it. To be up front, I'll be, I'll be really, really honest with you. I'm not going to answer every question you have this morning. That would take a long time. <laughs> Nobody wants to be in here that long, so that's not going to happen. Uh, however, if you're a member, regular tender, or if you're just interested, there's going to be some further reading posted on the city tomorrow. Uh, with some other resources that if you're really interested and want to dig into it a little more to get at what we're talking about, those will be available to you. But uh, because ultimately it doesn't matter what Rick says or what our culture says or what uh, the pundits say or even what the highest court in our land says, what matters is what God says. Let's turn to his word now. So if you have your place in Romans 1, as is our habit, let's stand um, in honor of God's word. I'm going to be reading chapter 1 of Romans, verses 18, 18 through 32. <clears throat> this is God's word given for our flourishing. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the, cre- the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to a dishonorable passions. So their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. No matter what you're bringing into this place, this is God's word and it is for you and for your flourishing. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, there is so much muddle in our world right now and probably in our minds. So we ask by the Holy Spirit, would you come and clear that away so that we may hear from you? Lord, it is, it is uh, my passionate desire that Christ be formed in us. And so, Lord, would you form your Son, our Savior, in us today. Renew our minds, as we, as we just sang. Renew our minds. Help us to see your gospel this morning. No matter where we are on this issue, would you, would you give us grace to hear from you? Would you challenge us? And would you woo us in a way that only your grace can, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. All right. So you hear the claims rather often. My imagine, I would imagine that you not only hear them, but probably have said them, uh, that the church, that all the church talks about and rails against is sex, right? I'm sure you've heard this. Uh, to me, this is a lot like um, someone walking into a, a, a room full of people watching a football game, turning on hockey, and then getting mad that everyone's talking about hockey. Uh, the church has not exactly controlled the, the dialogue on this. Since the 1960s, the West's sexual revolution has screamed about sexuality rather loudly, and it has kept asking questions about it and, and kept putting forth new opinions and, and thoughts, and that the church has then sought to speak to it. So quite frankly, it isn't the church that keeps bringing sexuality up in the cultural conversation. However, that is not to say that the way in which the church has always talked about it has always been helpful. In fact, uh, they have not. Christians have caused harm often by speaking with a kind of self-righteousness towards those struggling or wounded by the sexual revolution. And so where that has taken place, we need to repent. Where we have participated in making light of people's struggles or reducing the complexity of their struggle to a simple, just stop, we need to repent. However, 
we should not repent where God's word does not teach us to. And so this morning, my hope is that we're going to see where it does and where it does not. Okay? We're going to look at this text in two ways this morning. The outline's in your bulletin. <clears throat> Actually, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the text itself, and then we're going to answer some common objections. Okay? We're going to look at the text itself and then some common objections. Really simple. Let's start with the text. Okay? Now, if you're familiar with any of the debates that, that surround the Bible's teachings on this issue, you will know that many of the discussions revolve around whether or not the Old Testament law should continue in its significance for us. Right? You know, Christians in the Old Testament done. Or uh, regarding the particular uh, words um, and how they're translated such that some will say, well, that's not dealing with uh, loving monogamous relationships so much as some kind of abuse. Okay? Um, the reason why this passage in particular was taken or, or picked is because it's not open to those rabbit trails. We could go down them. I could help you with those if you really need to. Some of the reading that will be on the city will help. But we don't have time to go down all those rabbit trails. Okay? At the same time, what we're going to see here is that Paul's point in Romans 1 is not, listen to me, it is not to show God's judgment on particular sins. No matter what those particular sins are, that's not the point of this passage. Instead, Paul's point is to illustrate how humanity as a whole is alienated from God. This isn't about individuals. This is about us. Okay? In light of that, look down at verses 18 to 25. Uh, Paul begins this way. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now stop there. Many, many will read this, okay? And some of you probably are in this camp. Maybe most of us. Uh, we'll read this. We'll hear wrath of God. And we'll hear unrighteousness. And what we'll do is we'll misread it to say that what in fact is happening is it's the unrighteousness is revealed for which God's wrath is coming. Right? Here's the unrighteousness that's going on and God's going to get it. Like God's going to get those folks. But that's not what's going on. God is not... This isn't a passage that says God is angry and here's why. Look at all this sin. That's not what's going on here. We, tend, and we think this because we tend to think about this individually, right? About individual people. Here's what happens. You've got people who start worshiping birds, and then they start doing this, and then they start doing this over here. But that's not what's going on. What Paul is doing in Romans, the, the entire letter, is he's writing to a church that he did not plant, but one in which he is hoping to be able to get support from while he moves on from the Mediterranean world where he's planted lots of churches into Spain, right? The Spanish people need the gospel, right? So we've got to get the gospel into Spain. So how are we going to do that? So, uh, so he's, he wants to come through Rome. He's never been there. He's never met them. And what he's doing is he's writing them a letter to explain to them, here is the gospel that I preach. Here's the good news that I preach. And the thing about good news is, good news presupposes something. You're going to come in and proclaim good news. You're either presupposing some bad news or at least a bad situation. And so that is what Paul is doing here at the beginning of this letter. Paul is telling the story of humanity as a whole. And he's beginning it where everything went wrong in the first place. The exchange of our worship. Some of you don't believe me, I can tell. If you have a Bible... Just look a couple of verses before it, verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Right? Salvation from what? So he set it up there. The, the gospel that I'm preaching, the gospel I'm going to explain to you, is the power of God for salvation. But from what? Now he tells us. 
And he does so by reiterating what we often do here in this place. He reiterates the story of the Bible. Because, you see, the Bible is clear that there is bad news, but it wasn't that bad news, that problem that we have isn't um, natural. It's not what came or what the way things originally were. It is something that happened in time. Things went wrong. See, humanity was made to know God, to love God, to be in a dependent relationship with God, but we became convinced that we could be independent from Him. We didn't need to be dependent on Him. We could be independent from Him to be our own authority, our, our own source of life, our own lords, and so we betrayed God. And this is what Paul is talking about here. It is the betrayal of God and its results. And so Paul says right there that, that all that we can know about God, like for what can be known about God is plain to them because he's shown it to them. So God is, is, is somehow revealed through what has been made through, through creation, but something happens when we turn from him. It says that we ultimately suppress the truth that we know deep down. And, and, and so when we did that, something happened in us as a people. Paul talks about there in verse 21. He says that humanity did not honor God, and therefore our hearts were darkened. Darkened hearts. Nice little metaphor there. That is what in theology we call corruption. That something happened in the, in the hearts of people that, that changed our nature. Here's what that means. We are not neutral beings. Right? We are not the tabula rasa, the blank slate, kind of born with now, now we are this neutral thing so that whatever comes out of us must be morally neutral. Not at all. In fact, Paul says our hearts are darkened. Everything in us now is bent away from God by nature. Not a few of us, not just those sinners over there, all of us. All of us bent away from him. But Paul also says that we are now without excuse. Did you pick that up? And ex being without excuse implies guilt. We are guilty of betraying God. And that's where all that wrath language comes out, right? Uh, now, we don't, we don't like wrath language because often when we think about a wrathful God, we think he's mad because we didn't do something like we didn't eat our peas, right? As if, as if God kind of lays out these arbitrary rules and we broke them and he's now he's flames shooting out of his hair and things like that. But the Bible doesn't talk about our betrayal of God like not eating our veggies. He talks about it like committing adultery. Adultery against him. And lastly, Paul says, we exchanged God for images. So we saw that we were corrupted. Our hearts were dark. And we saw that we were guilty because we were without excuse before him. But lastly, Paul says, we exchanged him. We gave him up for other things. And this is what we call theologically alienation, right? We're separated from God. Separated from him and want nothing to do with him. Now, sure, we may say we're, we're all for God. You, you may be in here this morning, you're not a Christian, you're like, what are you talking about, dude? I, I believe in God. But is, is it the God revealed in the Bible? Or is it God to me? You know what I mean by that, right? God to me is like, and we kind of go off on our little rabbit trail, this is what God to me is like. So is it God to me, who comes from up here? Or is it the God of the Bible? Now here's the key in verse 24. Look down in verse 24, he says this. Therefore... In light of all this, God gave them up. How is God's wrath revealed? In Romans 1, God's wrath is not revealed by fire falling from the sky. God's wrath is revealed in Romans 1 
By him giving us what we want. We want, to, we want to be alienated from him. We want to be dark. We want to go in a certain direction. He gives us over. Go for it. That's how his wrath is revealed. God gave us up, Paul says, because we worshipped the creature rather than the creator. So, why is God's wrath revealed from heaven? His wrath is revealed because we've turned away from him, rejected him relationally and as our authority, and because we continually suppress the truth to fit our own ends. How is it revealed? God's wrath is revealed by letting us go our own way. If that's what you want, go for it. And now he's going to show us how that plays out. So that's exchanging worship, but he shows us how that plays out through the second exchange, desires. Okay? Look down at verses 26 and 27. Right, these, are, these, are the, these are the touchy ones, right? These are the verses that no one really w- wishes were in here. Or at least, my guess would be that many of us wish weren't in here. Look, here's the thing. No one argues over what these two verses are saying. Not at all. There, there is no argument amongst any of the literature that what Paul is saying here is, what, is anything other than what is very clear that he is saying here. Okay? It clearly says that homosexual practice, both among women and men, is dishonorable and an error. Okay, that's not up for debate. The question from those who advocate for a reading of this passage that kind of mitigates the negative view of homosexuality is the question of exchange, right? Uh, that, that's the one. They say, well, look, look, this isn't talking about those who are oriented a certain way. This is talking about those who are oriented heterosexually and end up changing that, go a different way, you see. That's, that's really what this is about. It talks about exchange. Um... But here's the thing. That assumes, again, that Paul is talking about individuals. Paul's not talking about individuals in this passage. Paul is talking about humanity. Humanity as a whole. And so what he's talking about is a representative of what happened in us. Paul is telling the story of what happened to humanity once alienated from God. Which is why he uses the word natural a bunch of times here. Did you notice that? Look down at verses 26 and 27. Women exchange natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. Men likewise give up natural relations. So Paul is drawing in creational language. Those words, that natural relations kind of word, that was one of the most common phrases used in every Jewish polemic of the time against pagan homosexual practices. And they were, those polemics were rampant. <laughs> it was one of the chief arguments, in fact. And so Paul is using this phrase the exact same way that every other first century Jewish writer would have used it. He's saying that it is against God's creative intent. In other words, what what Paul is saying is that sexual complementarity, you you understand what I mean, right? Male, female, like that they fit. Okay, I can leave it there. Okay, so, so sexual complementarity is part of God's design. It is how he made us. And so we turned away from how we were made when we worshipped other gods. And we continued to turn away from him and how we were made in this way. Okay, and one of the other arguments against the Bible's negative evaluation of homosexual practices that it isn't talking about loving monogamous relationships but some form of abuse Again, this passage doesn't give us that wiggle room, right? There's mutuality here. They gave, up, they gave up natural relations and pursued passion for one another. 
This doesn't give us that wiggle room. Truly, none of those passages do, but, but you can't even begin to argue it in this one. This passage talks about mutual desire among partners and clearly lays it out as a negative. But here's the main point. And I, I want to make sure everyone in this, in this room hears this. This passage, Romans 1, is not about homosexuality. Some of you are like, then why are you preaching a sermon about homosexuality? Like, no, it's not about homosexuality. These verses are about the evidence of humanity's alienation from God. That alienation is first evidence in our refusal to worship Him and instead place created things in His place. Whether that is a, a carved image or something that is, in our culture, we don't do the carved image thing so much as we do the imageless things like power and money and success. And then Paul shows that this is evidenced also in our rejection of our Creator by exchanging natural sexual complementarity for something else. In other words, this is an illustration, but it is a powerful illustration. Paul is saying, do you want to see how we've turned away from God? Look at this. We have fundamentally rejected him as our creator and authority. Clearly, these things don't go together. Now, I say that, especially that last little part. I, I don't mean to make light of this at all, okay? What I want to do is highlight what Paul is doing. Paul has said that humanity, all of us, have suppressed the truth that is all around us, even within us, and exchanged God for God to me. Because God to me doesn't, would never say no to me. So we've exchanged God for God to me. We've, we've continued in that, even by declaring that what is clearly not natural is. So Richard Hayes, the dean of the Duke Divinity School, and if you're not familiar with the Duke Divinity School, it is no bastion of conservative theology, okay? The, Richard Hayes, the dean of the Duke Divinity School, puts it this way. The complementarity of male and female is given a theological grounding in God's creative activity. That's in Genesis 2, 18-24. By way of sharp contrast, he says, in Romans 1, Paul portrays homosexual behavior as the quote-unquote sacrament, so to speak, of the anti-religion of human beings who refuse to honor God as creator. That it's, it's, it's not somehow uh, simply one sin that God particularly hates and wraths against. It's an illustration of our brokenness as humans. Now, this is where most of us expect this message to end, right? God hates homosexuality, probably hates homosexuals too. So there. Uh, but Paul doesn't let us do that. In fact, what I love most about these verses is that Paul's executing a bit of an ambush on us. Because he's, this illustration is given to us to get us into a, a, a kind of righteous indignation, a frothing, so to speak, of the mouth. Like, yeah, da, da, da. And then he gets us. In verses 28 to 32, look there. God gives us over again. First it was to worship what we shouldn't. Then it was to pursue sexually what we shouldn't. Now it is to think and do what we shouldn't. Look at that list in verses 29 to 31. Look what he says there. Evil covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, insolent, haughty, haters of God, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Listen to me. You see, if Paul had stopped, what we would be tempted to do, especially those of us in not, listen, not everyone in this room can relate to what I'm about to say. But for those of us who don't struggle with same-sex attraction, 
And that's not all of us. There are some that do. But for, for those of us who don't, if Paul had stopped where, before these verses, we'd have carte blanche. Begin wagging our fingers, shaking our fist, look down on those who do struggle with these things. Talk about how those behaviors just show rebellion against God, all the while feeling really clean and really good. But Paul reaches his rhetorical height in these verses, not in the last ones. That last giving over by God leaves us in a place where all of us are. Who in this room hasn't struggled at some point with envy, with arrogance, with disobeying your parents for real? That's the point. That's the point. Homosexuality is a rather powerful illustration, but it is not the only example of humanity's alienation from God. These all are such things. But it's not just that. Paul also speaks of those who approve of those who do these things. In other words, maybe you don't struggle with same-sex attraction. Maybe you don't struggle with those kind of desires. But, you, but you're an ally of those that do approve of their behavior, whether that's homosexuality or may, maybe you just approve of gossip, approve of someone's slander, as long as it's in the name of your ideology, approve of diso- being disobedient to parents, you know? Paul says that is also evidence of our fractured relationship with God. So this is our situation. Alienated from God, suppressing the truth, given over by God to go our own way. And this lays the groundwork for Paul's declaration of the gospel. Because he doesn't leave us in Romans chapter 1. He continues moving. You see, ultimately, Christianity isn't about giving people a list of rules to keep. It's about giving us a ruler who kept the rules for us. Because those with darkened minds who suppress the truth, who are, who are without excuse and alienated from God, can't keep rules. Paul will declare in chapter 3 of Romans that a righteousness has been revealed now, just like God's wrath has been revealed. A righteousness has been revealed through the faithfulness of Jesus. We are broken, we are alienated, and we are guilty. But Jesus comes to rescue us. And so in this passage, what Paul does is he points the finger at all of us so that he can lay out the gospel for all of us. No one is any worse in any more need or any more broken than another. I don't care where your desires lead you. Ultimately, Jesus is the only one who can make us whole and right before God. That's where Paul takes us in the text. Like I said, there's not a whole lot of argument over the negative evaluation there. But now let me deal with a few objections. Okay? I can't deal with all of them. Matthew Vines, in, in his book, uh, which is probably one of the most widely read by those who, who want to change what the Bible says on this topic, he has like 40 questions in the back of his book, which really amount to four substantive questions. Um, but there's, there's no way we can get to all of them. Okay? The first objection that I want to deal with deals with the question of desire. Specifically, unwanted desires, right? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not real happy with what I just said because you're saying, Rick, I've had these desires as long as I can remember and I didn't choose them. If I could choose, I'd choose something else. But that is a very real objection. It is very powerful. It's, it's what I'd like to call the born this way objection, right? How can God say that this is wrong when he made me this way? 
Now, one thing I'd remind us before I, before I get into the, the kind of main part of this answer is, is simply this. Remember what we just said. The Bible is very clear that we are not born neutral beings. Okay? Some of us are, uh, we, we are, we are born as, as those alienated from God, bent away from him in need of rescue. Okay? First and foremost. What I would also say is this. For some time, the church has argued that homosexual desires can be changed or that they were chosen. Um, in other words, it was argued that to be able to be a Christian, you had to change your desires, right? You had to change your desires. You had to change from having homosexual desires to heterosexual desires. Here's what I would say to that. that uh, ain't necessarily so, okay? It's probably wrong to focus on that bit. That is not to say that these desires can't change, and some they do, but they needn't. Here's what I mean. There are plenty of stories, they are made super public about how someone will come to Jesus out of, out of uh, drug addiction, right? And for some of those who come to Jesus out of that destructive lifestyle, they'll come out of it and they'll never again have the desire for their drug of choice. It's wonderful. We celebrate those. We love to put those stories on the front page of our newsletters, right? More common, however, is the story of the Christian who came out of that and lives a life, a daily life of costly obedience, turning from the desire that they have to go back to what they knew and instead turning back to Jesus. That's more common. And unfortunately, that's not the story we celebrate. We should. See, Paul's point here in this passage is that all of our desires are messed up. All of them. Not just yours if you have these desires in, in terms of same-sex attraction. I mean, all of our desires. Listen, I have desires that I've had longer than I can remember, too, that aren't right. But those desires don't create an identity. Not defined by them. And not acting on those desires doesn't make me less human. Okay, The desire of something does not make it good or pleasing to God. Simply because we have a desire does not therefore mean it ought to be. And so if you're here this morning and, and you do wrestle with same-sex attraction, maybe you even self-identify as gay, hear me clearly. There is not a person in the world whose desires are not misordered. But let's not move from an is so easily to an ought. Just because something is doesn't mean it ought to be. That leads to another objection, right? Yeah, you said that everyone's desires are misordered, so, so why are you focusing so much on homosexuality? Right? I don't, I don't hear you saying that someone can't be a gossip and be a Christian. Okay, now, that assumes something that I said that I didn't say, first and foremost. But, but I'll be honest, there is some merit to this position, not because of what many evangelical churches have done or said, but because of what they haven't. And this is where that charge of bigotry comes into play, right? This is the one we hear the most on the news, that, that we're focusing on one particular group of people, singling them out, singling out one sin above others. There are a couple things to say on this objection. The first is one little word. That word is repentance. It's repentance. This passage here does not allow us to single out homosexuality as somehow worse than gossip or slander. So again, the Bible is not saying that if you struggle with these things, you are too far from grace. No one is. But you see, the issue is repentance. That's a churchy word, so let me explain it. Repentance, in the, in the Scripture's understanding, is turning from one thing 
towards Jesus, turning away from the thing that we have been seeking our identity in, seeking our satisfaction in, seeking to be right before God in, and turning instead to Jesus. You cannot have faith in Jesus unless you are turning from something else. That something else may be thinking that you will make yourself right by, by getting all the money you can. We call that greed. Or it may be thinking that you will flourish so long as you can be yourself, which means pursuing your sexual and romantic desires. But the scripture argues this. If you think you are a Christian, you know what gossip is, and yet refuse to repent of it. You call it good, and you practice it thinking God is happy with you. Then you are in danger of hell because you aren't following Jesus. You may say you do, but there's no repentance. At the same time, listen to me. If you struggle with same-sex attraction, but are willing to repent of those behaviors, not to become heterosexual, but to repent of those behaviors, even if imperfectly, and cling to Jesus as your only righteousness and satisfaction, then God is pleased with you. The second thing about this deals with identity. I said this last week, but I want to make it clear. It is reductionistic to the extreme, and an insult to you as a person to reduce you to your sexual desires. Just as it would be to reduce you to your preference for sweet tea or bar soap or body wash. Okay? Now, some will say, but Rick, if, if all homosexuality is sin, then aren't you condemning people to a loveless life of mandatory celibacy? Listen, I think this issue and the language that comes with it is raised because of... Um, the, because the church has not, at least since the Protestant Reformation, given the honor that the Bible does to the single life. To call it condemning assumes that sexual expression is the way you express love and that it is your right. <laughs> Again, God's design for sexuality is that it is to be expressed only within the covenant relationship of a marriage between a man and a woman. For, and listen, we need to make this really clear. For those with same-sex attraction, the issue is no different than those who are heterosexual and have not found a spouse. It is no different. That isn't to say it's easy. But both Jesus and the Apostle Paul, at least we know clearly, lived very full lives without expressing their sexuality. Despite what some may say, Listen to me. Despite what some may say, you do not have to be married to be human. It is not somehow more godly to have a spouse. Pastor Kevin DeYoung says it this way. A spouse in a minivan full of kids on the way to Disney World is a sweet gift and a terrible God. It is a sweet gift, but it is a terrible God to worship. Last thing on this before I move on to our last one. It, if you are here and you have never thought that homosexuality isn't a sin, but instead you tend to joke about homosexuality or homosexuals, or maybe you engage in abuse towards those who struggle in this area, look the other way, no eye contact, refuse to talk, you know, the way we treat people less than human, Paul would call this kind of activity maliciousness, strife malice, maybe some other things from this list. This list right here. You are just as broken. No, Jesus did not join in sin or call it good. 
But he did love sinners just like you and offered them himself. Lastly, last objection I want to deal with is, I know I'm going a little long, so bear with me. Last objection is, frankly, this, that we're all making too big a deal of this, (laughs) right? Aren't we just, aren't there smart people on both sides of this, right? We love this. Isn't this just an area like, um, like maybe who it is that should be baptized that, that Christians can just disagree on, right? Isn't, look at this smart people. Smart dude over there. I'm pretty sure he loves Jesus. Smart dude over there. He's pretty, pretty sure he loves Jesus. Like, can't we, can we all just get along? Often it's argued, look, the church was wrong about slavery. <laughs> church was wrong about slavery. Isn't it possible it's just wrong about this? Sounds great, right? It's actually a very powerful, rhetorically very powerful, especially in our culture, very rhetorically powerful argument. The problem is it's a category error. Here's what I mean. Issues like slavery, like gender roles, like the subjects of baptism, have been debated throughout the 2,000-year history of the church. Even if you don't count Paul's letters as actually debating the issue of slavery... Augustine said it was a sin in the 4th century. Aquinas said it was a sin in the 12th century. There were people, there were Christian rulers who abolished it in their territory in the 7th and 8th century. And it was Christians, in, finally, who, who put an end to the abolition, to, or started the abolition of slavery in, in both uh, England and here. Did the southern church use, try and use the Bible to, to enforce chattel slavery? Yes, they did, but not all of them. A lot of them. So it was not a somehow like the church said this. No, in, in fact, theologians, church leaders have been, have been saying that that was a sin for a long time. In fact, the Pope himself, uh, in, in, and by the, I, I mean that in terms of an office, not a person, because this person didn't live this long. Uh, through several hundred years within the Middle Ages, consistently issued papal bulls saying that slavery should stop in Christian territories. However, in the 2,000-year history of the church, until the last 30 years, conveniently coinciding with the winds of change in our culture, we have no evidence of any Christian ever saying that homosexuality is okay. Ever. It's it's just not the same thing. It's just a category error. But secondly, here's the other reason why we we can't just all get along and agree to disagree. Sexual immorality, which is more than homosexuality, by the way, and I hope I made that clear last week. Sexual immorality, however, it does, homosexuality is included in that. It's just bigger than that is one of the things, along with some other, that is consistently given as something incompatible with faith in Christ. We can say that we can agree to disagree on this so long as the issue doesn't involve salvation. However, consistently in the New Testament, it says that it does. It is a gospel issue, plain and simple. It would be no different than suddenly arguing that you can be a Christian and unrepentantly commit adultery or steal from people. Arguing that repentance, listen to me, arguing that repentance is a condition of the gospel, a demand of the gospel, is not popular, but it is true. Forgiveness is always conditioned upon repentance. Always. Now let me conclude. 
I've tried to make this text, uh, to argue this text forcefully. Tried to make it forcefully clear. It's been a little more teachy than preachy, okay? Um, and, and I've done that because of our cultural moment. But now let me speak a little differently. Because ultimately, this is not an issue. This isn't about an issue. This is about people. This is something we too often forget, especially in conservative circles. We're not arguing about an issue. We're arguing about people. We're talking about people, their lives, their hearts, their thoughts, their, their friendships, their relations, everything. We're people. I've had friends that have come out as gay. I've had others who sat in a living room with me and confessed it as part of their past. Here's what I know from 10 years in the pastorate and 37 as a person. Sexual sin breeds a particularly dark form of shame. I know that. Many of you know that. We think we can avoid that shame with, with cultural acceptance, but it never seems to work, does it? I mean, we've had cultural acceptance after cultural acceptance of everything from, from uh, riskless sex to, to pornography and, and now to, to homosexuality, and it never really seems to be enough, is it? It never seems to work. And so if you're here today, and what I've said makes you wonder if you are welcome here in this church because you struggle with these things, listen clearly. This church is not a house of pure saints. It is a hospital for sinners. I don't care what you bring with you. The welcome of the gospel is for you to come as you are because there is nothing wrong with you that's not wrong with me. And Jesus saves broken people like us. He offers us grace. He offers us grace to be identified not by our actions, but by His actions. To stand before God with His perfect record, to come out from under the weight of sin because He has taken the weight of that on Himself. And then to follow Him, returning daily to the truth that only He can save. Only He can make us whole. Only He can satisfy and we do that daily in what seems like a long, ordered, uh, long obedience in the same direction. It, it seems like, it, when will this ever stop? When will my desires change? When will, this, when will I not struggle with this? And we do that day after day in hope of a day when He will come to make all things new. To reorder our hearts exactly as they were made to be ordered. To set all things right. I don't care who you are. That is the offer of the gospel this morning. And so my call to you, as it is to myself, even as I say it, is to rest in that. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's so hard to know what to pray. On the one hand, I pray, Father, very clearly that you would work in the lives of all of us, that you would form Christ in us, as I prayed before, that you would use even this message to form Christ in us. There are so many barriers that get into our hearts when we start talking about this issue. Friends that we have, political positions we take, uh, ways that we don't want to point the finger because we're afraid somebody's going to point it back at us. And they will. Maybe they should. Lord, as, as we come, we, we ask only that your gospel would penetrate us to help us see that there is no one in this world any more broken than anyone else. But saying that doesn't mean we say it's okay to stay broken. 
but instead to come to you to see that healed. For my friends here in this room who struggle with same-sex attraction, I pray that you would be near to them by your grace. Let them not struggle alone, but to share their struggle as we share our struggles with each other, confessing our sins to one another so we might be healed. And Lord, let this church be a place where the gospel is applied with much grace and humility, but it is applied so that your name would be made great and so that our city might be transformed and see a beautiful example of what it means to flourish as humans under the the God that we were made for. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.